Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Show Pubcast. Love podcasts, hate nonsense. It's the Politics Show Podcast! <laughs> if you didn't clap, then questions. Questions for Lisa about why you didn't clap. And Lisa, we got it the right way around. Mm. Um, so yeah, hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us in Liverpool. And if you're watching at home, we're live from The World Transformed, which is in Liverpool this year, aside from Labour Conference. And I'm here today with the General Secretary, of the RMT, Mick Lynch. And, uh, oh my God, I should have checked your title because you've got a bigger title now at Huck Magazine. Mm. What is your big title now? Digital editor of Huck Magazine and Sandwich Magazine as well. It's a magazine magazine about sandwiches, it slaps. You should should buy Huck Magazine because it's beautifully printed and Mm. and Ben does a fabulous job with the politics on there. Um, And he's also an Mm. ex-terrorist, if you'd like to explain that. No further questions, Your Honour. Okay, great. <laughs> no case to answer. Let's go straight in. I think um, the obvious place to start would be uh, HS2, the big announcement that came last week. How did the union react to that? Well, a little bit of a shrug of the shoulders because it almost seemed inevitable. I've never seen such a cock-up of a, a fairly simple communication that we're going to stop and cut HS2. It took them five days to work out how to say that simple phrase. Which, but it's very disappointing. I know it's controversial. But there's nothing worse than stopping a project halfway through. We should have had a, a high-speed line, and if Corbyn had been elected in 2017, we'd be halfway constructed now. Should have started in Scotland. It should have come from the north. It should have come up from the south and met in the middle. And it's an inevitable uh, farce, really, that we've, we've experienced. We're in favour of high-speed lines, and we don't think it's an either-or. If you have a high-speed line, you don't have local transport local buses or whatever, because they're just telling lies anyway about all these projects. None of this stuff that they've coated it in is going to stand up. Uh, Harper was on the telly this morning when I was having my shower, uh, which wasn't a coincidence, it was planned that way. Uh, (laughs) And he was just making it up. He said that the projects that the North is supposed to put up with now were just examples of things that 
may happen. So the, the whole thing is a farce and it's a tragedy and, and anything you want to add to it. But it's just another example of why they've got to go. They have to go. And as the quickest it can happen, the better for everyone. Uh, yeah, it's a disaster. So you're not convinced by the new network round north or this big expansion that's going to take place apparently all in the north of England? No, if, I think it's all cobblers, to be honest with you. I don't think any of that's going to happen. I don't, they didn't even consult Network Rail about how it's going to work. Uh, they're now saying that all the money is not there. Um, it's unspent money, and they will want to keep that for tax cuts later on towards the election. I don't think you'll see diggers in the ground and people working on these projects for any time at all. I think it's a whole... Farago of lies and incompetence. Also, part of it is right that a lot of the projects that they've been much in the same way as the forty new hospitals. Mm. When you actually drill down into it, these are projects that are already happening. Mm. They're already going, and like a lot of them are projects that have already been completed. So it was like one in Nottingham. They're like, we're going to extend to wherever the fuck it already extended. We're going to in Manchester. We're all we're going to extend to like extended five years ago. Like it's it's nonsense and I think the the reality of it is, is like they're trying to sit there and spin it as they are taking this money from this this white elephant project which also like I think not a lot of people have, not enough people have talked about the fact that it will take uh, traffic off of the main lines and that's mm. the point of it to allow there to be an easing on these on the main lines so that like local services can run um, it will like they're going to take it from this project and instead distribute it in a local manner. But the reality is, is like a huge percentage of that is going on road projects and mm. a huge percentage of that is on potholes. And I'm sorry, but like this pivot toward like not putting it into public transport. We uh, at Huck, we, we did this piece very recently um, about transport in, in the UK and about the realities of living in places that are not invested in. So rural communities, coastal communities, ex-industrial communities, they are consistently in the lowest uh, percentages for social mobility hotspots. Um, and there's it's no, like, no surprise that there's a correlation between the lack of transport options there. Like Most people in the country, in rural areas, use cars, but more and more, for example, young people cannot afford to use cars. So pouring money into roads and projects that fix potholes, which is great, yeah, obviously potholes are not great, but I would rather there be public transport. I'd rather there be things that, that poor people can use. Because the reality is, is if, you, if you cut transport links, you cut social mobility, you, you cut the opportunities of people to uh, change their lives, to expand their horizons, to be able to go and get healthcare that they need. And that, that's what we're talking about here. That is the fundamental reality of cutting HS2 and moving it to road projects. Mm -hmm. And Rishi coming out and being like, we are, we are on the side of motorists. Like, girl, everyone's been on the fucking side of motorists for the last forever long. Like, I am sick of it. I don't know. Like, I, I, I live in London now, that's fine, but I, you know, I grew up all over the country. Like, I have lived in buttfuck nowhere. It is, like, the world is built for cars. But never above the Watford Gap. I, you know what, I've been but to the, Birmingham a couple of times. But the cherry on the top is that now it's been revealed they're going to have to put the train, go high speed from Old Oak, because they're not going to build Euston until somebody pays for it. Mm. And if you've ever been to Old Oak Common Inn, and I used to work there, it's where my railway depot was, it's the arse end of nowhere. Nobody wants to go there, and you'd have to come off the line, go up to Willsden Junction. If you want to try that walk, 
I'll take a full body armour outfit with you. All these people with their cases. Up to Wills and Junction, get the Bakerloo line into Euston. And then um, the, the, where they put the trains back on the, on the conventional line, they'll go slower than the Avanti trains go now. Because they're not tilting trains. It'll go on conventional network. It'll go at 110 miles an hour rather than 125. And it'll have less seats on it. It's going to have 500 seats rather than the 650 on the trains that service Manchester today because it's two five-car units and the platforms aren't long enough for 10-car <laughs> at Manchester Piccadilly. So the whole thing is an utter fart. There's an argument, though. So you go that... slower on the high-speed line than you can go on the current conventional <laughs> <laughs> There's an argument put down by government, and I feel like someone should give the conservative line, and I'm glad it's me. Um, that, um, <laughs> it always is. <laughs> that... Um, People aren't using public transport anymore. That COVID has fundamentally changed how we get around the country. Hybrid working has altered the need for capacity. I mean, do you see that as true? Well, it's one of the changes we've got to make. We must get people to use public transport if the planet's future is dependent on it. It's one of the key factors of modernising our society. They accuse us of modernisation. They're leaving us with Victorian uh, infrastructure rather than building a modern one. We must make a mass conversion to public transport. It's got to be cheap. It's got to be safe secure and affordable. So that means giving every pensioner in the country free travel, giving young people and students free travel, uh, and opening up the network so that people feel it's theirs and get them out of this cocoon of uh, vehicle, uh, private vehicle travel. Because even if we get electric vehicles, you're still going to have the problems of uh, undercapacity on the roads. You get all these emissions off uh, tyres, all sorts of problems, with, even with electric vehicles. People have got to get over the idea that everyone can have one, two or three vehicles parked outside their, their house or their flat. It's ridiculous. Also, the, I'm sorry. No, please. I say also, the, the idea of like, you know, people aren't using public transport. Yeah, because one in ten bus routes in the last year have been cut. Yeah. Like, people need the routes. People need the transport to be able to use it. I simply can't turn up at the train station and like, get on a train that hasn't come. Can't get on a bus that isn't there. And like, that's, that is what they are doing. That is what the Conservatives have been doing across the entirety of the, of the public sector. It's just rolling back, rolling back, making the services so shite, so crap that you can't use them. And then be like, well, mm. why are we funding them? Well, it's not. Shall we just go fully privatised? And to, to pick up on what Mick was saying, you know, like, in terms of our emissions, but in, across the globe, a fifth of all emissions are from transport, and 45.1% of those are from private cars. So pouring money that should have been going into a public transport initiative like HS2 into resurfacing and expanding roads so that there can be more private cars at the same time as rolling back net zero um, policies, as Rishi Sunak has done, is an attack on the generations that are to come it is a fundamental attack on this earth mm. by people that don't give a shit as long as them and their mates are making a load of coin. But do you think it should be political? Do you think public transport should be a political football that is, you know, bandied about by the, the ruling well, party of the day? Well, it is a political issue, and in many ways it's a class issue because people that are suffering the most in our society cannot afford to make these trips. If you want to come to Liverpool uh, on, a, on a train, it's going to cost you 140 quid. And that isolates people. And I think transport going forward should be a great tool of liberation for working people. If, if they can depend on it and they can afford it, it will transform 
societies and it will transform communities. And that includes down to the, the small buses in rural communities where people uh, are more and more getting trapped in those areas up to high-speed lines. It's got to be the way we go. If you're in Denmark or Germany or Sweden, people are using public transport more and more. They've got these uh, incentives to use it in Spain. I mean, Spain has built, uh, I think, six times the amount of uh, high-speed line we've got since we first said we'd build HS2 in 2008. They've got on and done it, transformed their country, and are eliminating air travel as well, which is what they've done in France. But this is where it gets tricky, right? Because this is when we get into sort of NIMBYism territory. Mm. So a lot of HS2, a lot of the cost was because we were building tunnels to make Mm. sure that in certain constituencies you couldn't see the rail line because apparently Mm. there's nothing uglier than a train. Weird, mm. weird opinion and to true. have. And true. I mean, where do you? Do, I mean, how do green is, policies align on that? You know, this is the thing: is it's like you know, we we were very happy for us to like mash Astoria in the centre of London, which has like a huge and potted history, um, you know, and a, a huge connection to like the queer community in London, for example. Like that's fine. No, like no one is going to talk about that. But what we are going to talk about is putting a train line through like Bedfordshire or wherever the fuck outside of the M25 and like really throwing our toys at the pan. And the reality is, is like people need to get places. People need to go to things like simply going around and around on these arguments. Of like, it's just the same as like Jeremy Clarkson every single time on Top Gear would always be like whinging about uh, things like, what are they called? Wind turbines. Thank you. Wind turbines. <laughs> one too many of those. Wind turbines and things like that. But the, the way that motorways like cut through our landscape, mm. the way that like electricity pylons cut through our landscape, but they're fine because they they're necessary, and like none of this is but actually also about. Also, built the London Orbital, right? So yeah, if Thatcher did it, it's fine. Like this is the thing is like none of them actually are like relate to the reality of their like aesthetic, um, like being. It's all about this like weird culture warry crap. Like we we fundamentally should be moving away from private vehicles. We should be looking at public transport, we should be looking to other countries, as, mm. as Mick has like, very articulately so in, said. In France, they, people bid, cities bid to have the high-speed line. So they say, we're going from A to B, down to Brittany or Normandy or whatever, and there's going to be two or three stops. And they put submissions in to get it. Over here, people say, we don't want it. We don't want it coming through our community. I don't get it, because there's nothing more ugly than a motorway and nothing more Handsome than mm. a high-speed train. <laughs> <laughs> I used to so work on high-speed trains. I worked at Eurostar fixing them so, uh, and breaking them occasionally. But it, it's been a great benefit. Nobody would say, oh, it's been a disaster. But you have to invest. And it has to be long-term. If you go, The SNCF is the French railway. If you go to their head office in Paris, it's got a map of Europe. This is pre, not, it's not to do with Brexit or anything like that. Let's not go, go there. But it's got a map of the high-speed network of Europe that they want to build, and it goes to Edinburgh. So that's their vision on the French National Railway. It goes through Germany, the, into Italy, the, down to Spain. And that's exactly what we need for European travel. 1993, the ad for the Eurotunnel, mm. uh, included, it was basically like the, the London underground map that we have of the tubes, but it was like London up to Edinburgh in like to all of these cities across Europe. And that was in 1993. And I was like, this, this could be your next journey. We had a Eurostar depot in Manchester and one in Edinburgh, but they canceled it all. They canceled all this stuff before we had an infrastructure that said you could get a train from the Northwest direct to Paris. And we had specially built trains that I used to work on, but they canceled them all and sold them all to Canada. Why? Because they have, there is no plan for transport in this country 
And there hasn't been since the 1970s. What do you when they attacked BR, they undermined BR through lack of investment, but also the right-wing media are attacking it night and day. And it's been underinvested ever since. And the only way they can get private sector operators is to stuff their mouths full of gold. So all these talks that we're in dispute with make profit every day. Every day we're on strike, they get indemnified from their losses. All through the uh, pandemic, they made profit every day when hardly anyone was travelling. And they've been extracting money since 1995, and they intend to do it. And they don't care about the rest of society. That's what it's all about. It's gangsterism. It's not even capitalism. This is pure corruption that our country's running on at the moment, in my opinion. And that's, this is a measure of it. The amount of money they've spent on consultants and advisors rather than labourers and uh, railway workers is phenomenal. And I'm sure we'll get a, an inquiry into it one day, and I think it's just going to be riven with straightforward corruption and price gouging. That's why it's so expensive. Well, let's talk about that. So Mark Harper was in front of a select committee not too long ago, and he mm. was forced to admit that the dispute has probably cost the taxpayer mm. more than it would have been to just resolve well, yeah, uh, at the beginning. So the savings they were seeking to make from the unions, from the workforce, is £200 million. That's what they wanted to say. Uh, one of the uh, chief executive of one of the TOCs, who's not in the dispute, because there are some that aren't under the DFT's control, he said they've forgiven, foregone £1.5 billion of revenue. So they're seven and a half times over what they wanted to save through fighting the dispute. If you take what the hospitality industry is saying, because they're the ones that are chiefly affected, they're saying they've lost three and a half billion pounds worth of turnover. So they've sent five billion pounds to save 200 million. And these people are saying that they're fiscally uh, responsible and you've all got to tighten your belts. They're throwing money at a dispute for no reason whatsoever. And all of the measures they come up with are completely unpopular, like closing all the ticket offices, de-staffing the stations attacks the accessibility and the uh, security of women and other travellers and all sorts of people who have come out in their droves to support our campaign. And they just don't know what to do now. So they've gone off to think about that for another uh, two months. So that will, we'll find out what the answer is at the end of this month, we think. But we'll just be going at it again, I think, uh, trying so to win this dispute. So that's one question I wanted to ask you, actually, because we've seen across the country this like wave of support mm. for strikers and we've mm. seen people coming out but this country is like riven as I mentioned earlier it's riven with public services that have been like um, intentionally underfunded mm. to the point where people using them have now sort of like found workarounds right yeah. and how do we as people that support the strikes how do we as people that are here um, like backing you the whole way. How do we all make sure that the strikes don't become part of broken Britain? So people trying to get to work simply factor in the fact that two days out of the week they're not going to be able to get in or they're going to have to take a workaround. How do we make sure that they still have the impact that they need to have in order to make sure that you win? Well, it'd be nice if people went out on the picket lines and supported the doctors and the, the others, the consultants and the junior doctors, as well as railway workers. But there are a lot of strikes going on at the minute that don't break through the news uh, barrier, if you like, whatever that is. As Unite have got dozens of strikes running. We've got to make sure that we're all behind. And when you answer these questions about, you know, who do you support? 
I'm sure all of you in this room will be supporting strikers as opposed to Rishi Sunak or uh, whatever his name is, Mr Hunt uh, and all the others. Um, and we've got to get out on the streets. I think the TUC should be doing more. We've got to get people active about these anti-trade union laws, which are an attack on all of you. You've all got to join unions. You've got to be campaigners when in the unions. You've got to be forcing your union officials to take action to, to get these campaigns up and running. And we've got a, we've been saying, myself and Dave Ward from the CWU and others, the unions have got to be out with all of the other campaigns as well. So that, no matter what's going on in your community, we've got to be there with you learning from each other and how, how we, we keep campaigning. But it's, it's going to be a struggle. It's, it's not easy. Uh, but our people are determined to carry on. I think this is the thing, and I think that we, as a, as a movement, as, as a left, really need to learn from and understand is, is the necessity of being out in communities. Mm. We've been very, very, like over the past six, six years, I'd say, since like 2017, the election, been very, very good at sort of like mobilizing for a specific moment. So whether mm. that is the general election in 2017, general election in 2019 whether it's <laughs> whether it's you Sorry, know, I'm laughing <laughs> delivery it was your delivery Thank that you. was Very funny, funny mm. actually um, whether it whether it's any one of the like incredibly important mm. labor struggles that are going on right now or new struggles against the hostile environment we're looking at struggles against the increasingly and the ramping up of transphobia for example what we're really, really good at is siloing ourselves off. And we're never very good at being able to like come out in solidarity. And one question I wanted to ask you was about how do people utilize, because I think that the rail strikes probably of all of the strikes of hot strike mm. summer, mm. hot strike autumn, then hot strike winter, mm. and then hot strike spring into the summer again, um, ha have been the ones that have been the most powerful, the ones that have cut through the most. Mm. I think that's in no uncertain terms down to you and a lot of the, the ways that you have brought uh, the arguments to yeah, people in the mainstream. Though, that's really <laughs> well, that's true. But, but I think like, you know, like how do we utilize our support for them into a broader movement? How do we make sure that the people that are like, oh yeah, I really like that guy. Yeah, he like he brought it to Kay Burley. She was chatting mm. shit. Mm. How do we get those people into then organising in their workplaces, in their communities, in, in their well, places. Well, this is the thing. We've, and it's in this movement that we've got now, if you look in, around this room, people are very similar. I always ask this question. How many bricklayers are in here now? Any plasterers? Former labourer. Former. You escaped from it. <laughs> and we're in danger of being a little club. I mean, I'm a, I've been a manual worker my whole life, uh, an electrician and an engineering there's a danger that this just becomes a club of people who like each other's views. Mm. Uh, and they're just arguing about style and little bits and pieces. The labour movement has got to reach out into working class areas. So if you look at the struggle that's going on at Amazon now, which is a really, one of the toughest employers on the planet, we've got to make sure we're supporting all those people. We've got to make sure that that becomes a sort of globalised uh, campaign right around right around the globe but right around this country to start with and even the unions are having trouble they're, they're not able to break through into what you might call the real working class where people need unions more than anyone else and that's a real problem i think that's a real problem that faces trade unions it's a problem that faces labor if you look at the membership of the labor party it will be drawn from a certain strata 
of people, often in public service uh, industries. And we've got to find a way to, to break out. So we've got to get our ideas out there. We've got to win the battle for ideas, that somebody said. Uh, we've got to keep persistently saying that public ownership and redistribution of wealth and equality and fairness are values that you live all of the time. They're not just a, a temporary thing that a party will deliver or play on uh, in a particular period. So it's got to be a bit evangelical. I think we've got to start again in some ways uh, yeah. from, from the workplace. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Politics Show podcast. I mean, Keir Starmer has fundamentally changed the Labour Party and he is changing the relationship that the party has with the unions. I mean, where do you see that relationship going? Well, it won't be going anywhere with my union because we're not affiliated. So, uh, <laughs> but we are a very political union. We have a political fund. Our rules, uh, one of the objectives of our union is to create a socialist society. Most unions don't have that in their rule book. So we are a, an avowedly socialist union. We don't understand what socialism is. I'm not going to go that far. Uh, and nobody's ever worked it out. But So <laughs> our relationship will be a very assertive one. Where people do stuff properly and do the stuff we like, we will congratulate them and stand with them. Where they do something that's not in our interests, we will criticise them as fiercely as possible. That includes the SNP, Welsh Labour, or regional people such as Steve Rotherham in this town, but Andy, and people like Andy Burnham. But if you take Andy Burnham, he's from the centre of the party, right? He's not, he's not my particular politics, uh, even though my politics are not that left-wing as it happens. I'm a very traditional Labour person. I do believe in tax and spend. I believe in the institutions of our movement, the welfare state, health service, public ownership and all that stuff. The stuff that Jim Callaghan could have lived with is where I am. I'm not particularly radical. Um, Somebody like Burnham has been completely with us in all of our campaigns. And I find that remarkable where somebody who's as centrist as him can stand with trade unions. But the front bench of the Labour Party has almost seemed to be embarrassed by people like me. There are plenty of people that are embarrassed people by people like me, most of, my, <laughs> most of my family and certainly my kids <laughs> when they, when they see me. Uh, and I just think the movement's got to come back together. They've got to work out what they are and they've got to stop being so managerial, uh, the Labour Party. They've got to you know, let their hair down mm. a bit. Maybe we'll see that tonight. But like, you're going like to have to negotiate. Patel last week. Farage. Well, Farage, you might be here again. Um, <laughs> You're going to have to negotiate. This is the government in waiting, allegedly, if the polls are anything to go by. Hmm. Do you think that you will have, and this is pure speculation, can you imagine you'd have an easier time negotiating with the Labour government that you've had with the Conservatives? 
Well, they're not a pushover. If, I mean, some of you might be too young if you remember the fire brigade strike under when um, John Prescott was meant to be the voice and liaison with the unions. He faced down that strike and defeated the fire brigade union. What year was that? Was that uh, 89, I think? Anyway, quite a long time ago. Uh, and they have been, they're not going to be a pushover. Um, we've had tro- trouble with Ken Livingstone in London when he's been the mayor, but that doesn't mean you get divorced. I mean, we're not affiliated, and most unions are not affiliated in this country. But we will still keep going with the idea that there's, there's more than one string to the Labour movement uh, boat. There's got to be a cultural sector, which is some of this is about. There's got to be our new media presence. There's got to be artistic sector. There's got to be industrial trade unions that are fighting their corner. And there have got to be politicians that are, are pushing forward a detailed agenda for changing the country. Those three things will often be in conflict with each other and there'll be tension. But the Labour movement can live with that. Um, I don't think there'll be a pushover, but it's still their policy to have public ownership of rail. We want them to go further and allow uh, the the cities and uh, boroughs to have uh, municipal bus companies. We want public ownership of the freight system and the ferry system around our country. So we've got to keep pushing that. It took us nearly 100 years to get public ownership of the railway the first time. It took my union nearly 50 years to get recognised by the the rail company. So we're not going away. And just because you get disappointed doesn't mean you give up. And I think that is one of the problems with the Labour movement as well at the minute. There was a rush of people who joined under Corbyn, uh, and that was great. But there's also been a rush of people at the first setback, which are two setbacks, losing two elections, and then the right wing coming back. They're loving what's going on. They're loving the mass exodus of those new activists leaving the Labour Party because it leaves the field for them. So if you want to be a Labour activist, I mean Labour Labour movement activist, a trade union activist, it's a life. It's not something you do for 18 months and get a few T-shirts and badges and then move on. I mean, look at the state of me. I'm only 40. It's not just for Christmas. (laughs) But I've been doing this since 1978, you know, and it's always been a struggle. And you've got to stay with it. If you believe in the ideas that we hold, you've got to believe in them for your whole life. And you don't give up just because you're getting setbacks. And there is too much of that. There's a bit of flighty socialism, I think, amongst the younger generation. Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) But that whole Corbyn thing, it was very much based on ideas. And that's good, because ideas are really important. But it wasn't based on a lifetime of commitment, in my view. That's my criticism back to some younger activists. You can't just move on like a butterfly from one thing to another. You've got to stay with the struggle, and all of the struggles have got to be joined together. And it's a permanent struggle. I think somebody else said that. I think... (laughs) I've heard that once or Mm. twice. I would say, I think you're right. I think there needs to be a commitment to to our aims. The thing that I've struggled with over the last few years, and actually I think since the 2017 defeat, is the the willingness of people to pour their lives and more like their resources, both mm. like financial but also their energy, emotional and physical, into talking shops, mm. into just sort of like navel gazing like let's fight for a certain thing in our CLP let's fight for a certain 
constitution of momentum. Let's fight for this. I, I, the more and more I sort of look at it, and you know, some of my like dearest, dearest friends, partner, you know, like the people I surround myself with are in the mix of this, and that's that's fine. But the more I look at it, the more I think, well, the more that you're all arguing mm. in a CLP. Mm. Or the more you're arguing about which momentum faction it is that are going to be in charge of momentum at this point, the less that we're actually doing things that materially impact the struggle and the less that we're doing things that actually matter. So, you know, in the aftermath of the, ni- the 2017 election, for example, instead of this sort of like big, you know, look inside of ourselves, actually, I think what we should have done is been like, we ran a fucking stonker of a campaign. We were out there in constituencies, in communities that no fucker, like six weeks previously, would have put us competitive in. And we were. And the reason for that is people like you who were in here, people across the country who were committed from those areas who were ready to go. That was the moment where we should have gone, okay. We didn't win this time around, but what we do know is that we have people in communities across this country who can go and be part of those communities. So, like, what is going on in your community? Like, do you need, like, is there a need for a food bank? Is there a need for a, like, solidarity campaign for a local strike? Is there, for example, like, where we are in Liverpool right now, the church just across the road, every single Thursday during term time, runs a baby bank for young women uh, in and like people that have children in this area that do not have the, the ability to be able to get milk, etc. Like, why are we not there? Like that. So for me, the flightiness of it is fine yeah, well, if we're going into I mean, like the actual... traditional way of building the Labour Party and the Labour movement is in the municipal- municipalities, towns. I think it's easier way to say that. But and if you take what was going on in Poplar in the twenties and where Attlee came from, I don't know where he came from in, in his family, but his life was spent in places like you're talking about, in youth centres, feeding boys mainly, uh, putting boots on their feet, collecting stuff. And that's where his vision of the welfare state come from. It doesn't come, that kind of commitment to socialism, doesn't come from reading an online uh, dissertation about two-thirds mm. of something. I mm. It comes from a lifetime of being committed to the working class and the struggles that they're going through. And if it is uh, uh, to counteract racism, for instance, the strongest way you can counteract racism is through working class activists having the ideas in working class communities. And what a lot of working class people think, in my experience, is they're being lectured about certain issues. And if a working class person says to you, this community is really struggling, and how they articulate it is sometimes difficult because we're really short of resources, we're really short of means, and everyone is poor, and what we're getting is more poor people being piled on top of us already existing mm-hmm. poor people, and they're not all white people, by the way. Mm-hmm. You'll start to get different uh, versions of this. We've got to be in those communities talking about what we believe in, which is making a better society, but you've got to show people every day how that's tangibly going to work what solidarity is between people, how you organise people, how they get better results on a daily basis. And I don't think there's enough of that. There's too much discussion and not enough action on the ground. Well, to continue the discussion, 
how, how are we going to move this into the next election? So we've seen for the past week, it was Conservative Party conference, and there were some mm. well, rather shocking things said at the, uh, the pulpit of the yeah. conference. You know, you had Suella, Suella Braverman taking a hit on immigration. You had Rishi Sunak out and out being a transphobe. I mean, mm. first, well, what did what you we, make of What that? we've got to do, and I think, well, they're, they're only going to turn to the right. If, if, when they get rid of Sunak, they will take another turn to the right, and all these people... Are, are vying for that, and maybe Farage will come back in and help them. They, maybe Farage will be shocked about how right wing they're going to go. I don't know. Um, and we've got to, we've got to counteract that by making our labour movement a bastion of all the things that they that they hate and uh, going against them. But what people have to do, and sorry if people don't like this out there, we have to get a labour government. There isn't any choice. And I see constantly seeing things online and letters to certain magazines, oh, I can't vote for Starmer, he's not this, that and the other. Well, if you don't vote for him and don't get him, you're going to get Suella Braverman or some version of Suella Braverman delivered by someone else. And that will be an absolute nightmare for every person in this country who's, who's uh, dependent on their work for a living. And the, and the poorest communities will suffer the most and the division they create will be appalling. I mean, they're already at it now. So we must get rid of this government. And the only government we can get in its place is a Labour government. And I'm afraid that will be a Labour government under Keir Starmer. But you don't stop then. Just as we shouldn't have stopped when we lost the mm. two elections in 17 and 19, if Labour win, we don't let them off the hook. We don't just say, oh, well, you've won. Do whatever it is that you're going to do to water down your policies and get on delivering this insipid brand of uh, the, the Social Democratic <laughs> Party or whatever it is. It's probably not even as good as that, the way it's going. But we've got Sorry, to like. keep them under pressure because it is our movement. It doesn't belong to Keir Starmer or Rachel Reeves. They'll be gone eventually, as, as will I and as will everyone else. But the movement itself will continue. So that's why it's called struggle. It's got to be permanent and you've got to keep at it. Whether they win the election or not, I hope they do win the election. I can't think what will happen if they don't. But it's nothing else that's coming our way. It's either the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, and people have got to get them over themselves about that. And anyone who's not working for the Labour Party to win that election, I'm afraid, is not doing what needs to be done in an analysis of the interests of our class. You've got to analyse what is the best thing to happen for working people, for the working class, in the next year. The best thing that's going to happen out of all the options is to get rid of this government and get a Labour government in. And then we carry on with our campaign. Well, I think that needs to happen uh, with uh, a Labour movement that is bolstered by people getting involved bolstered. in that. Like, that, I think that's the... the, yeah. the, the what? Bolstered, don't worry about it. You okay? You okay? Sorry, it's just a train thing. Carry on. <laughs> what is it? I don't know. <laughs> carry on. <laughs> you know, really and hot. I think, like, it's so a bolster is a uh, push is that not what I meant? Mm. It's a train thing, right? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> a buffet? Maybe that's what I meant. Or bogey. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, could you say your serious thing now? <laughs> sure, probably. Um, it's very got, warm up here. Uh, yeah, no, I think, I think you're right, Mick, but I think that we need to be spending this time in the run-up to it bolstering the movement. <laughs> I've had enough of you, actually. <laughs> Propping, <laughs> it a bit. Propping it up. Um, lifting it from the rails uh, and you know, <laughs> giving it as much support as we possibly can because that is, I think, what we have found is the real thing that's going to 
<laughs> the lever, <laughs> as it were, <laughs> of power, <laughs> switch the lines. Um, you know, that's the thing that's really going to be able to mm. uh, stop Starmer in his track. <laughs> <laughs> Before he hits the buffers. Before he hits the buffers! Maybe that's what you're looking for. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think yeah, we, we should be looking to a Labour government, but we should be looking to a Labour government that's fucking scared of us. We should Absolutely. be looking to a Labour government that is shaking in its boots by the might of the Labour movement, by the might of the movement for socialism in this country, and that is not found having like fights online it's not found having like mm. whinges at each other in constituency labor party it's not found in these online forums it's found by us getting out into our communities and building community power and building the kind of resistance to the stuff that suella was saying so just to, i want to really want to track back to what suella said because it struck me the stuff when she was there being like the thing is I was going to do a solo impression and I realised I couldn't do like a Wallace and or Gromit mm. character so I couldn't really sell it but Is that who she is to you? Really, yeah She does look very Wallace and gromit Oh, I don't know Like fashy Wallace and Gromit Fashy? Oh, fa- fa- yeah. okay Yeah, but so she sort of does this whole thing where she's like, you know the reason why politicians aren't really finding a solution to the problem of migration is because they're scared of being called racist which is really funny because like six and a half years ago when we were locked to a plane a deportation charter flight at Stansted Airport live on Sky News we called them racist when we were in the dock in Chelmsford on trial for terrorism we called them racist when we were acquitted for that terror charge on international news we called them racist every single day since then us and millions of other people across this country have called them racist because that is what they are. It is nothing to do with being scared about being labelled the thing that they are. The thing that they're trying to do is just beat down this door um, of building the walls ever higher. And what we know is that, like, the reality is, is like, build the walls higher, fine. It's never going to stop people coming. It's just going to make the climb more lethal. It's just going to make it more dangerous for people that desperately need our help. So it, the entire thing is a fucking fallacy, and it's so frustrating to watch it, and then to watch Keir Starmer and Yvette Cooper and David Lammy and every single one of them come out and trot the same shit lines. Starmer this morning said he wouldn't put through the Rwanda plan, even if the Supreme Court said that it was legal. And I caught myself on the train up here being like, oh, I was like, hold on a second. I'm literally like excited about the leader of the Labour Party not creating camps of refugees in Rwanda, a place where they shot refugees not a few years ago. I am excited by that. That is the dearth of our politics right now. And that is why we need a powerful movement, a powerful Labour movement, but a powerful movement around it so that we can fight we can come together in the same way that we did in Pollock Shields, in the same way that we did in Dalston, in Peckham, same way that we did at Stansted, that my friends did at Brookhouse, and the same way that people have done 
across the entirety of this hostile environment, and also before, because let's not forget that it was New Labour who brought in charter flights. It was New Labour who extended the deportation, uh, the detention estate. Can you just contextualise it? So Ben's talking about uh, stopping deportations, in case that was not clear. Sorry. Sorry, I really got into I'm it. I'm going to see Keir really... Starmer later. I'll tell are you how excited you are. <laughs> <laughs> telling me the twats from me. <laughs> do you think the Conservatives, has a, at the party, do you think it has a racism problem? Yes, it's always been a racist party, though. Uh, not been a time when it hasn't been racist. It's, uh, it, it's, you know, for me, not powered uh, before. I mean, uh, it's a party of imperialism. It's, it's a party that's got a, a whole history of it, and they will stir the pot on race and uh, division whenever they are getting desperate. And the more desperate they are, the more they will stir it. And this is the time uh, that it's come back to, to being true. I mean... Yeah, they're just a bunch of racists. And the same with, trans, with transphobia as well, I think. Yeah, like the probably. exact same thing when they're sitting there being like, you know, we'll, we'll stop trans people being getting care, getting health care. It's like, are you fucking insane? Do you think this is actually something that anyone, like, someone who is one of your workers, someone who's in your union, is the culture war on their mind? Is it something they really care about? Uh, no, I don't think they are. Uh, I go to branch meetings, people aren't talking about transphobia or, or uh, transgression, whatever you want to call it. Mm. It just doesn't come up. Again, it's, I think it's a bit of a bubble in certain uh, groups. Uh, it comes up in my union. We've got LGBT plus uh, groups. It comes up there, but it's not an issue. Uh, you know, where I used to work, I used to work with a load of people fixing trains, covered in shit, really. Uh, manual workers, it's just not there. It's, that issue is not an issue. Yeah, I think this is the thing, in, in, so most working class, no, I say, in most working class places where I grew up, across in like the coasts, I, I moved around a lot, but in all of these like coastal, rural, poor communities, mm. people don't give a shit. Like, majority but of you can stir them up though. You can stir hatred up if yeah, you want. Of course, of course. And like my granddad, who was a Romani mm. gypsy man, but is a member of the British National Party, mm. and would tell this story any, any moment he got the chance about these two tower blocks in Nottingham, and one of them were filled with like indigenous people, white people, is his words. And the other one was like brand spanking new, beautiful tower block. No, this didn't mm. exist, by the way. Mm. This is a complete fabrication. Mm. This like new tower block that was built for immigrants. And one day the white people from this tower block came across the road and went into it and got all of the stuff and brought it back. Like it's fucking nonsense. But the reason why he feels so enamored by this fabrication, the reason why he's so angry, the reason why he is a gypsy who is a member of the British National Party is because of the subjugation of the working classes, mm. is because of how fucking difficult it is to be poor in this country. Mm. And it is a dereliction of duty of people in this room, across all of these rooms in this city, mm. for not building a powerful, mo a powerful enough movement to resist yeah. The denigration and the hate but, that have, but, that's brought down by people like correctness, as it used to be called, now it's been called wokeism or whatever. I don't even know what that means, but uh, it does work. When I started work in 1978 in a factory, it was one of the most horrible environments you could ever work in. Uh, the sexism, the pornography that used to be around openly, uh, all women uh, being exploited, and the racism that was stirred up in our environment, in, in factories, uh, dividing people on racial lines, has largely been eliminated. I know that people, people don't just stop being racist because they're not allowed to express it, 
But it does help if you stop people saying racist things all of the time. You'd be sitting in a canteen and people would just be sitting there using some of the most foul language that today would be unimaginable. And working class people do challenge each other on that. You're not allowed to sit in any canteen or even on a building site or whatever, spouting overtly racist and probably sexist stuff. Probably sexist stuff is probably not as challenged in, in manual work environments, but it has completely changed. In those environments now, it doesn't, doesn't exist. So I'm not against you know, culture wars, whatever you want to call it. I think political correctness has worked. And all it means is you're polite to people. You don't wind people don't up <laughs> by calling them things they don't like being called. Mm. So, you know, and it doesn't matter what your, what your particular uh, category is. Some, most people are in more than one category, in my experience. They're in all sorts of categories. True, bestie. So, yeah, <laughs> shut your mouth and stop being a racist. It's quite a good tactic, I think. So true. Yeah, really good place to, to pause there. Let's do some questions. Mick's got to go in a minute. So, Laura, where's, where's Laura? Here she is. She's going to come and grab the mic. If you can really keep them short and sweet, just, you know, in the, uh, in the vein of a little bit of socialism, you know, can you try and give some time to your fellow, you know, man or woman? That'd be great. Um, pardon? Ben, I'm really hot. No, please, like, carry Ben, on. I'm really hot. <laughs> I've always said this about you. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I'm after the GB news. Yeah. I'd like that. Yeah. Mm. Um, where, where are we going? Should we go over here? A couple over here, Laura. Oh, no, here she goes. Laura's choosing, so. Mm. It's not on us. It's lovely. Go for it. I think you have to speak up, and that's just going to go online. So just, yeah, as okay. loud as you can. Did you hear me? Yeah. Oh, it is. Oh, thanks very much yeah. for the discussion. Really interesting. Um, Mick alludes to the fact that um, you know the the decision at the next uh, general election is is Labour or nothing. And, and, and does that sort of make, make you not think that proportional representation might be an idea here, so that we can build some sort of progressive alliances uh, and mm. actually have sort of governments that aren't just short term, sort of four or five years, and that we can sort of build long term goals and not have sort of capital projects that are just cast aside from time to time? Yeah, I do. I, I recognise the, the arguments for proportional representation. I'm not entirely convinced by it yet. I mean, it will mean permanent coalitions. And I remember the coalition we had before. And if you just say Royal Mail, privatisation, and uh, what was the other one? The uh, student fees, mm. right? They were both, the Liberals put both of those in. And you would be giving power to the Liberals permanently. And so what, what happens in proportional representation, and I lived in Ireland last week, they've had it there since the foundation of the state, there's very rarely been a majority government, and you end up with this consensus in the middle, and then you end up with a load of independence on the edges, which is what's happened in Ireland. And I don't see that the politics are particularly different. If the country's going to move to the right, it will move to the right under PR. You might argue that it will be held back, but that's what the Liberals said uh, with Cameron and all that happened is they got pulled to the right themselves so I'm not entirely convinced by it and I do think it makes some fairly mundane politicians who've got no ideas and can't commit to any particular cause the people that are the kingmakers all of the time and everything revolves around their needs but I do recognise uh, it's been a problem uh, of people being unrepresented yeah mm. 
So um, just before, Mick, you mentioned um, in regards to HS2, the, the possibility, the probability of corruption, uh, especially even widespread corruption. Um, absent of an official investigation, and who knows how legitimate that would be, depending on how cynical you are, um, what advice would you have for what to look into or what to look out for? It was think about corruption. Corruption is not necessarily illegal. So uh, things being bent and being in favour of the rich isn't illegal. In fact, it's the way the society works. So when I talk about corruption, if you look at the railway industry at the moment, you've got rolling stock leasing companies who do nothing. All they do is set up uh, very complicated financial instruments with banks and bondholders. They make profit all of the time. Whether no trains run, they're making a profit of about £250 million a year. There is no risk... They put no capital at risk, and they've got no risk of not being paid. Right? It's the same with the train operating companies, and it's the same with many of the contractors that are building these big projects. When I say that is corrupt, I don't mean it's illegal and somebody's taking £50,000 and putting it in a false account. That would be illegal, and somebody might go to prison for that. This is just structurally corrupt. It's not even what they describe as capital, where you... So if you've got somebody to come and build an extension on your house, right? The two, you might get two or three builders, and then one might say 25 grand, the other one might say 28, the other one might say 30. That's, that's capitalism. That's the way it works. And you get a good job, and hopefully you get a good price. That doesn't seem to be happening in our society at the minute. The rich just keep getting richer and richer because they've got their hands on the levers of power. And it's one of the messages we've got to give to working people if you take their hands off the levers of power and put democratic hands based on fairness, we will have a better society long term. Everyone will be healthier, people will be happier, they will live longer in working class communities. And that's what, and I'll take the point about PR, that's what we've had in much of Europe. And that consensus has lasted for a much longer period. And so when you go to Denmark or the Netherlands, you're always looking upwards because they're all so big. <laughs> is what I get, and we all seem so puny. And that's because their society is more equitable, and it has been for a long time. We don't seem to be able to grasp those concepts that you've got to keep at some of these values forever, and we have chop and change. But I don't know where the corruption uh, lies. It lies all around us, I think, and most of it is legal. Anyway, I went a bit off piece there. Didn't I? It was good. It was I liked actually, it. it was beautiful. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Hi everyone, thank you very much for everything you said and I, I'm, I'm conscious that a lot of people are probably here because they really enjoy the quality of the podcast, the discussion and ultimately the quality of the discourse that it provides. Obviously, Meg, obviously you mentioned Kate earlier. There won't be discourse, we don't put that there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Alongside all the other things in terms of building an alliance that we talked about earlier, how high up on the priority list do you think pursuing a good quality of discourse is there? Considering that obviously two out of three of you on the sofa have faced quite significant pushback from the media and this real negative side. Which two? You're which two? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not implicating you there. I've done nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm implicating. I'm quite encouraged by the new media. I think it's good because people get the chance to concentrate on issues. It's not two minute or two second sound bites, which you get off the mainstream media in general. So I quite like it, but it's it's got to reach beyond the existing audience. And I also quite like set-piece speeches uh, where people come out and try and explain. When I was a kid, uh, 
I used to go to my local thing, Porchester Hall in Paddington, you would have top speakers from all of the parties coming down and presenting their case in a proper way and setting out the whole thing for 45 minute speeches with people getting up and roaring their heads off at them. And both Heath and Wilson and Callaghan and all those people could deal with hecklers. That little heckle that Andrew Boff did the other day, the politest heckle I've ever seen in my life. Wasn't that heckle? You said a word. These politicians used to be more robust. They used to go out and do three or four meetings every night with a turn-up-and-go audience. They didn't know who was going to come in through the door, and they used to take it. Now, this, this isn't all rosy. You know, it wasn't all great back then. But if you wanted to get involved in the debate, you had to go out and hear it. But you'd also have second-line politicians and local activists in the Labour Party and in the other parties as well, to be fair, who would go out and deliver the message in speeches. I think we've got to get back to some of that, or we need channels where people can develop ideas. And it's the development of ideas and concepts and principles that I think is missing. Everyone's going for this policy and that policy, or spend that quarter of a billion there, and that's going to solve this, and then transfer that money from that budget to that budget. It's a load of nonsense. We need proper tax and spend. We need to squeeze the rich. That's what we need. Mm. <laughs> Eat them. Where are we going? <clears throat> okay, cool. Excuse me, um, shout your question. We've got one at the back. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> why did the Enough is Enough campaign fail to make the changes that we might have wanted it to? Oh, that's a good well, I don't think it has failed to make. It depends what you think it is for. So that's, that was an intervention, and I was speaking to Dave Ward the other day about what we might do into the run-up. What we didn't want to do in Enough is Enough, and it was the CW and the RMT and a bit of Tribune magazine. We didn't want to start an organisation where people say, how do I get on the committee? And loads of people asked us that. How do I get onto the executive committee of Enough is Enough? When are you going to draw up a rule book and a constitution? And all this stuff. We don't want any of that. We've got the People's Assembly. We've got the Labour Party. You've got your unions. We've got enough constitutions and formats and people wanting to take them over. We need to be a bit more light on our feet. So we will bring back, it's all, in all likeliness, enough is enough, or whatever we call it, uh, in the, in the run-up to the election. We don't want to go too early, and we don't want to be too late. We want to influence it as an independent working-class movement, and that's the idea. It doesn't have to be following the Labour Party's train. It doesn't have to be picking uh, the issues that they want to pick. It should be about what working-class people want and what you know, these concepts about of socialism that we believe in that the Labour Party is not going to say. So I don't think it failed. It's just that the people that are involved have got a lot to do. You know, the CW were in the fight of their lives at that time uh, on the post. They just came out of the BT dispute. And we're in the fight of our lives on the railway dispute. We can't do it all. We need other people to take it up. And we will be a catalyst again and we'll start some other stuff up in the new year, I would have thought. How do you think people can help do that? How do you think people, other people can help get involved and make sure that they're shouldering a bit of the yeah, so logistical... When it, yeah, when it comes up, they need to start their own. I mean, people need to use their own initiative and start their own groups and get them going locally and do the stuff that you were talking about, making interventions in your community about whatever issue it is. If it's about the old people's home or the swimming pool or the library or whatever, making sure that we're there in all of the campaigns. I mean, one of the greatest nights I had was at a mosque in northwest London. I'd never been in a mosque before. And we had a massive meeting there. Loads of people turned out, some old lefties, some a lot of people from the community, Muslim people and Hindus and all sorts of people. We had everyone there 
Uh, and But what I found out is what the work that mosque does every day of the week. And it's, I'm not a religious person. I was brought up as a Catholic, and I knew what Catholic churches can do. I'm talking about the, the participants, not the priests. And, <laughs> don't, 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 he's got a mind, but you know, not the leadership is what I'm getting at. And I think we've, some of us on the left have got to get over that snootiness about faith communities. We've, the working class, a lot of people go to mass. A lot of people go to temple. A lot of people go to synagogues. That doesn't mean they're not progressives in any way. It doesn't mean they don't believe in redistribution, the stuff we believe in. So we've got to put down some of that snootiness, some of our theoretical shibboleths. Is that a word? Nice. Good a bit, like a, a bit like a bolster. Bolster. A shibboleth I and think it was bolster, the word yeah. we are looking for. You know, and, and get amongst <laughs> the people. Fail. That's where we've got to be. And enough is enough when we do it again. That will be what we hope uh, you can do. Everyone get involved and get out there and take the initiatives for yourselves. Bolster it. Nice, yeah. we're tight for time. So let's Bolster just do it. last two here. Yeah, go for it. Hi. <clears throat> um, how do we reverse the alienation that what you call the like real working class now feel in regards to the left? Like, how do we... Because it, it's become quite middle class, almost, with... The perception of it, and ha and that probably alienates a lot of um, like traditional bases. Well, I think people have got to start stop lecturing working class people. They got and I can't stand people who sell me newspapers. It just drives me up the wall. It's been driving me up the wall for forty five years. I don't want to read any of their papers. I don't want to join any of their groups because they'd normally split away from another group that had another newspaper <laughs> a couple of years ago. This drives me up the wall. We need to go back to where we started, which is amongst our people with very fundamental ideas about improving their lives. I've said this a couple of times in this. That's where the labour movement started and it's where it's going to be refounded. And all this stuff about vanguards and Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin... I've got to tell you, it's dead. That stuff is all dead, and it's never going to come back. We need to start amongst our own people with the, the fundamentals of what our movement is about. And that's when we will start to re-engage with working people and getting them into our movement. We've got to make it so that they can join as well. It's very difficult to be active if you're not as articulate as people that have been to uni and got A-levels. If you, you know, somebody like Angela Rayner is a remarkable example of somebody that's broken through that. But the rest of the people over in that hall, uh, certainly the ones that are making speeches, have come from a very narrow definition of what a professional politician is. And we've got to change that. And I do think the hope for that is the trade unions. The trade unions have got to get in and get more people involved in uh, direct politics, intervening in their local CLPs and local campaigns and all the rest of it. Right, we've got to wrap up there. I'm really sorry. But thank you so much, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, that was all right. Um, thank you for standing as well, if you did stand. I'm so sorry, you must be really tired. So um, go get yourself a drink. Yeah. <laughs>
and 365-day returns.